Well, and uh, we're uh, probably going to finish today, but we're still talking about uh, reproduction, having kids, all the different shilas that are involved. And we began talking last week about what is called assisted reproduction. And the specific thing we looked at was artificial insemination, and we looked at AIH, which is artificial insemination from the husbands, AID, artificial insemination from a donor, and then I think the very last thing we looked at, if I remember, was the problem of a single a woman uh, trying to get impregnated from a sperm donor, and although halakhically it's not so clear why it would be forbidden. I mean, you can't really point to something that makes it usher, but nevertheless, uh, it is uh, often said that uh, this would, number one, maybe discourage marriage, because who needs a man if I get a if a woman could have kids without a man. And uh, number two, spiritually, it may hurt the child to be brought into the world without any father that would be involved in his life. And finally, it might be a mask or a cover-up for immorality because uh, people could have uh, be promiscuous and then basically claim that it simply was from a sperm donor. So in halacha, you learn, and this is something that's sometimes a little hard to understand, we're used to the question, something is either forbidden or permitted, and that's the only choice. But in reality, there's a whole spectrum of things. Something may not be forbidden, but it's not proper, it's not the way a religious Jew should behave. And there's a whole richness of vocabulary in which different levels of disapproval are suggested, even though they don't have the magic word usher. In fact, you might find sometimes, you talk to a very learned rabbi in particular, and uh, are you allowed to do something? She'll say, oh, shouldn't do it, better not to do it. And you said, is it usher or is it not usher? You might find almost a reluctance sometimes to use the word usher, but there'll be like a million other words uh, that are saying it's not a good thing to do. it. So some people don't take that seriously. Some people say, which is not the right attitude, if you don't tell me it's usher, then I'm allowed to do it. Not really. There are different things that a Jew does not do certain things, even though. But uh, let me just mention another option, though, because there is a problem. I mean, the reason why a single woman would want to have a sperm donor, there are good reasons. I mean, she has a biological clock. Uh, she doesn't have a shidduch. She very much wants to raise a child, which is very understandable. She doesn't want to have an affair with somebody, because that's, not, that's for sure not good. So, this is an option. So let me just mention another option, which isn't 100%, yeah, but, but it's something that, that's interesting. That is, there is a technology that is called egg freezing. And what that means is the following. Uh, a woman pre-menopause, who is not yet attached, she does not have a shidduch, her eggs can be taken from her while she's still ovulating, and they can be frozen for later use. Now, the reason that's significant is that a postmenopausal woman can carry a baby. The only problem is she's not ovulating, so there's no eggs. So if we have eggs that can be fertilized in vitro fertilization, they can then be transplanted back into the woman and she could bring a baby to term. Okay, in other words, even a 60-year-old woman, if not older, can carry a baby physically the problem is there's no ovulation. So egg freezing is sometimes recommended 
but of course, uh, it only works if eventually she'll get married. I mean, in other words, uh, it's not, there's no guarantee that she will eventually get married, but at least it's a way that if she gets married at 50 or 45 or whatever it would be, uh, whenever menopause occurs, uh, she will still be able to carry a baby. So just remember, you can look that up. Uh, you can Google it, egg freezing, which is um, advocated by some rabbis for older single, single women pre-ovulation. Now, there's an interesting shayla the other way, which the Pesach here is very strict, and I'm not sure if there isn't grounds for leniency, but let me just give you the situation. This involves a male. Let's imagine you have a single person who, God forbid, uh, is undergoing chemotherapy. And the chemotherapy is likely, or radiation, let's say, is likely to render him sterile. That's often a side effect of radiation. So what he would like to do is, he would like to deposit sperm ahead of time so that in the event he is rendered sterile, his sperm can still fertilize his wife's eggs and she could carry the baby and it would be his child and her child based on the sperm that was obtained from him prior to the start of the radiation treatment. Now we know, we did discuss earlier, that there is normally a prohibition of masturbation or the emission of male sperm in vain, but would that be permitted because this is ultimately for the purpose of having children? So what the postgame have said, and again, I, I, I don't say I fully understand this, it actually bothers me, but what the postgame have said is they have differentiated between a man who's already married and a man that is in a state of being single. A man who's already married, well, the same way we discussed for any fertility treatment, I, I, you know, artificial insemination, he's allowed to give his sperm because it's for the purpose of procreation. So the same thing would be true if he's expecting radiation treatment that might render him sterile. He would be permitted, so to speak, to accumulate uh, sperm samples to be used for an in vitro fertilization. So that's exactly the same principle that would allow, you know, masturbation for any fertility treatment. And that's for a man that's married. But that's a man's married. That's what I'm saying. But and this is what bothers me. This is I, I honestly don't say I cannot say I fully understand or even agree with that. Is they have said if the man is single, and is not yet directly involved in the mitzvah of having children, he would not be permitted to give, or not to, not to give, but to accumulate sperm through a masturbation, even though this may be the only way he'll be able to have children in light of the radiation treatment. Because the argument that's made is, well, until he's married, he's not yet actively in the mitzvah of having children, and therefore he would not be permitted. Now, again, if this is the halacha, this is the halacha, I, I can't necessarily uh, argue with it. But I'll just say that I do have a real problem because even though he's single, he still has to think about the mitzvah of having children in the event he gets married. And if the probability is such that by the time his radiation is completed, he will not be able to have children, then I don't see why it's so forbidden 
for him to accumulate the sperm ahead of time. And yet, and yet the poskim have made this difference between an already married man and a single, and a single person. So just something to be aware of. Again, I'm not, you know, this class generally is not designed to give you final halachic psak. For that, you have to ask a rabbi. You can ask me too for final psak, but, but you know, whatever, whoever your rabbi would be. Uh, but I just want you to be aware of the issues so that when they come up, you'll know what is a halachic question, what is not a halachic question. Okay, so that's another thing uh, to be aware of, the very tragic situation of the person with uh, cancer who might be rendered uh, sterile for various, uh, because of radiation or chemotherapy or the like. By the way, let me mention yet another aspect which I don't want to go into fully, and that is there is in the Torah an actual category called Pitsua Daka. Uh, Pitsua Daka is a person, again, it's a male, it's a male problem, is a man, a male person, whose testicles are crushed or seriously damaged in various ways. Now here, you have to understand something. Here, a Pitsua Daka is actually forbidden to get married to a Jewish woman except to a convert he's allowed to get married. So there are going to be situations where even if something was medically necessary uh, for cancer or the like, there may be situations where quite literally the person might be rendered a pitsuadaka. Now, now what's interesting is sterility itself is not pitsuadaka, meaning to say the following. Pitsuadaka is an anatomical type of concept. So if they remove the testicles by surgery, that may be a pitsuadaka problem. But if through radiation or a chemotherapy, there is sterility, but there is not anatomical removal, then that is not pitsuadaka. Pitsuadaka is a very much of an anatomical concept. It is not a physiological concept. So there's no prohibition for a woman to marry a sterile man, a man who cannot have children, okay. A woman is allowed to get married to such a man. But if there is a Pitsua Daka problem, that is potentially very, very serious. One needs to talk about it. In fact, uh, well, maybe I shouldn't say it, but I, you know, te technically it's a public matter, although it's a very old matter. Um, around uh, 50 years ago in Israel, there was the head of the Turei Karta, who's quite a very interesting person, Ravamram Blau. And Ravamram Blau was a tzaddik, but uh, he was Nitzurikarta, meaning to say he was extremely anti-state of Israel. This is Nitzurikarta. He was the head of Nitzurikarta. And he wouldn't even use an Eged bus, you know, because the state, you know, supported the bus system. He used, he used Arab buses, you know, everything else. And uh, there was a little bit of a scandal because after his first wife died, he married uh, a French Gioret, a French convert, who had a very interesting past. She was like an actress, and you know, she was into all sorts of things. Uh, and he married her, and that was a little bit of a scandal. You know, he's marrying an actress. What is this? He's in Troy Carte. He's like so, so, so super from. Uh, he actually said that this is the only person he could marry because he said because of the Nazis in World War II. He says he was a Pitsua Daka, and therefore he had to marry a Gioris. That was actually his. 
thing. By the way, although people at the time said, oh, she's an actress, she's modern, she lived for many years. She might even still be alive. I'm not 100% sure. And she is more zealous than him. She is more Nature Carta than her husband. She actually became ultra, ultra, ultra. So uh, there's no trace of modernity in, in uh, any aspect of, of, of her life. But, but again, uh, his story was, he said he was a Pitsuotaka. So that's something to be aware of. You mentioned something about marrying a non-Jew? No, marrying a Giogas. No, no, no. no. Pitsuotaka yeah, cannot, cannot marry a non-Jew. No, no, no. Pitsuotaka is a Jewish man. He's Chayab in Mitzvah. He can't intermarry. But I meant he's allowed to marry a Giyoret. That itself raises a lot of questions, and I realize it does, and that is, there are certain disabilities in Klal Yisrael who are not allowed to marry, forgive me, regular Jewish women, but they're allowed to marry Giyoret. I'll give you two examples. One example is the Mamzer. Okay, what is a Mamzer? Again, this is a term that you need to be absolutely clear on. People translate mamzer as illegitimate child. That is a wrong translation. A child born out of wedlock is technically, although the term is not used that much anymore, is an illegitimate child, but a Jewish person born out of wedlock has no problem at all. You're born out of wedlock, you're perfectly fine. You're a kosher Jew, no problem. Mamzer is a child that is born from adultery or incest. So, if a married Jewish woman has intercourse with a man other than her husband, the child that's born, whether it's a boy or a girl, is Jewish because she's Jewish, but the child that's born is a mamzer, or in the case of a girl, it's called mamzeret. Now a mamzer, is a Jew, counts for a minion, puts on tefillin, but a mamzer does have marital disability. A mamzer cannot marry a Jew except for a giorit or another mamzer. So a mamzer can marry a giorit, a mamzeres can marry a ger, and another example of this is the male, Pitsua Daka, who cannot marry a, re, forgive me for saying, regular Jewish woman, but a Pitsua Daka can marry a Giyoris. Now here too, I guess today I'm giving you questions that I have. It's, it's a difficult issue because is the halacha suggesting, God forbid, oh, Giyoris is like second level person so that's why we allow Mamzer and we love Suadaka because they're not a regular, they're not re I mean, that would be wrong. I mean, the Torah first, number one, uh, Moshiach comes from a Giyoris. Moshiach is, the, is David HaMelech, and David HaMelech is the great-grandson of Rus, the Moabite convert. And the Torah says more than 30 times how you have to treat the convert, whether it's a man or a woman, with respect and with dignity. So it's certainly not connected to a second-class citizenship status. So, once again, I, I, I don't have a clear explanation. I, we have to think about this a little bit, but at least I want you to know the bottom line halacha. The bottom line halacha is that a mamzer can marry a gioret, and a mamzeres can marry a ger,
And Pitsua Daka, which is only male-based anyway, there's no such thing as a female Pitsua Daka, can also marry a Gioris. So be aware that, God forbid, certain types of cancer procedures, this can be very, very difficult, that involve the testicles and the male genitals, may, God forbid, not only create sterility, which is not a halachic problem per se, it may actually create Pitsua Daka where they cannot stay married. So that's... So when a person is, before he undergoes that procedure, uh, one should talk to a rabbi to understand exactly what the ramifications of that procedure is. I'm sorry, you can yeah. Do mumsers only come out of halachic marriages, or if a Jewish woman marries a non-Jewish man? Yeah, so this is very, very important. I'm glad you asked it. Um, a mumser presupposes a halachic marriage. So among other things, therefore, if a Jewish woman is married to a non-Jewish man, that is not a marriage, even if legally there's a marriage license. Consequently, if she commits adultery, quotation marks, by being with a Jewish guy, the kid is not a mamzer at all. Now, I want to add that this is not only true if it's a non-Jewish marriage. Even two Jews who had a civil marriage or a reformed marriage may technically not be married because they didn't have kosher witnesses and therefore there wouldn't be a mamzer. In fact, this is why so many people are not mamzers, because keep in mind the following. When you have a halachic marriage, the only way to terminate a halachic marriage is either by death or by get. Get is a Jewish divorce. A civil divorce does not terminate a halachic marriage. Do you understand that? If we were married halachically, even if we got a civil divorce by the state of Maryland or New York, or California, we are still married. Now, consider the following problem. Let's assume that a Jewish couple is secular or reform or not religious, and they got married, and they got divorced, and nobody had to get, and the kids, uh, and then mom remarried a second guy and had a kid, and the kid 30 years later, 20 years later becomes religious and discovers that they're born from a second marriage when their mother didn't get a get from the first marriage. Now that's pretty scary because that could actually mean that the kid from the second marriage might be a mamzer. But the solution is, doesn't work 100% of the time, but it works a lot of percent of the time, that if that first marriage was not a kosher halachic marriage, you didn't need a get. If you didn't need a get, then the second marriage is not adultery. Now, it may be out of wedlock if the second marriage is in culture, but that's not going to be a mamzer problem. You see, that, that's a solution. This is a very practical uh, sock to be aware of because you know, many, many people today, because the divorce rate is so high, many, many people are born from second marriages where mom never got a get from marriage number one. And potentially there could be a mamzer problem if not for that. Now, this isn't always going to work. Because sometimes, even if mom is not religious, maybe she got a kosher marriage. The rabbi was orthodox or whatever it is. Then you, got a, then you, then you do have a real problem. Sometimes there are going to be mamzer problems. But a lot of times uh, we can work around it with this particular uh, thing. Yeah. Um, as a child of... Uh and a, a mamzer, considered a mamzer? Yes. So 
So how does that coincide with what we said about a slave being converted and their children not being converted? Okay, so, so let me explain this. Um, the Torah says the status of mamzer goes on for 10 generations. However, Chazal understand that 10 generations is just an expression and it really means mamzer goes on forever. You cannot obliterate the status of mamzer. But there is one way you can obliterate the status of mamzer. And let me give you a simple way, although it's forbidden to do it. Let's say a male mamzer marries a non-Jewish woman, not a Gioris, not a Gioris, a non-Jewish woman. Now, is he allowed to do that? Absolutely not. It's a sin. It's a sin. Be sure you, it's forbidden. But he doesn't. The kids that he has are Goyim because their mother is not Jewish. If those children then convert, they're like newborn entities that are Jews, but they're not mamzers. Now, be sure you understand the difference. If a mamzer marries an already converted woman, the kids are born Jewish and they're mamzerim. If a mamzer marries a non-Jewish woman, and has kids. Then, when the kids convert, whether mom does or not later, it makes no difference, then they're not going to be moms. So the truth is, a solution for a male momser is to marry a non-Jew. Problem with that solution is, that's a sin. So I can't tell a person, do that, because that's a sin. But if you did that, it would work. Now, that's not going to work for a female momseret. Because if a female momseret uh, marries a non-Jew, her kids are born Jewish. There's no conversion, so there's nothing that's going to erase the prior status. But this does work for a male mamzer. Now, because of this, okay, I'm digressing a little bit, but okay, there is a permissible solution, which is very close, and that is, instead of marrying a non-Jewish woman, which is forbidden, the mamzer is permitted to marry a non-Jewish slave. Hmm. What's going on here? Uh, the Torah does talk about uh, non-Jews being owned as slaves, right? And a mamzer, well, okay, I, I need to explain that a little bit. Um, the Torah does talk about slavery, and that, that also raises a problem. But there are two types of slaves that the Torah recognizes. The Torah recognizes Jewish slaves, and the Torah recognizes non-Jewish slaves. A Jewish slave is called Eved Ivri, you know, a Hebrew slave. A non-Jewish slave is called Eved Kanani, which literally means a Canaanite slave, but it's not really Canaanite, it's any non-Jewish slave. Now, a non-Jewish slave, how does one become a non, well, let's go both ways. How do you become a Jewish slave? So there are two ways you can become a Jewish slave. One is, because of your poverty, you sell yourself into slavery, so you'll get room and board and be supported. Right? You can sell yourself into slavery. The other way is, if you stole and you don't have money to pay back your theft, you can be sold into slavery. Now, let me emphasize, this is not the same as not paying a debt. If you borrowed money and didn't pay it back, you do not get sold into slavery. But if you stole and didn't pay, you get sold into slavery. Now, an Eved Ivri is a limited term. An Eved Ivri normally cannot be a slave 
for more than six years. After six years, the Evid Ivri goes free unless he wants to remain as a slave. In which case, there's a ceremony, his ear is pierced, and he remains a slave until the Jubilee year, which we don't have today anyway. Okay? And an Evid Ivri, even during those six years, has to be treated uh, very, very nicely. Chazal say, he who buys a Jewish slave is buying a master for himself because if you only have one pillow, the slave gets the pillow and everything else. Okay. Now that's called Eved Ivri. An Eved Ivri, in terms of mitzvot, is like a regular Jew. An Eved Ivri must keep all the mitzvot of the Torah. Really, an Eved Ivri is kind of just like a hired hand that you give room and board to. So, Oh, well, the word Eved is Ayin, Beis, Dalit, that's Eved. And Ivri is Ayin, Veis, Resh, Yud. Now, Eved Kanani is a different thing. This is a non-Jewish slave. And non-Jewish slaves can become slaves in different ways. They might be captives in war, if a Jewish war. Uh, they might be slaves already in their societies. In other words, you can buy a non-Jewish slave from a non-Jewish slave owner. Or they too can sell themselves into slavery to get room and board. But there's a big difference between a Jewish slave and a non-Jewish slave, and that is a Jewish slave is a limited term of six years. A non-Jewish slave is a slave forever unless you, the master, choose to free them. You can free them but uh, the, the, the slavery never terminates by itself. Now, in order to be a non-Jewish slave, or in order for me to own a non-Jewish slave, if it's a male, he must get a bris and be immersed in a mikvah. Uh, if it's a female, she is immersed in the mikvah. And what's interesting is a non-Jewish slave, once they've done those things, is kind of in a quasi-status between Jew and guy. A non-Jewish male slave is obligated in the same mitzvot that a woman is obligated. So they have to keep Shabbos, they have to keep kosher, but they don't wear tefillin, they don't have to say the Shema. Uh, now, a non-Jewish woman slave seems to be the same as a regular Jewish woman because she's chayev in mitzvot like a woman. A slave is chayev in the mitzvot like, like a woman. Okay? Now, here is the thing. A mamzer is permitted. A mamzer cannot marry a non-Jewish woman. That's true. But a mamzer is permitted to marry a non-Jewish slave because she's in between. If a, if a non-Jewish slave female has children, those are slaves. When slaves are freed, they become full-fledged Jews. It's like a conversion. Can you repeat that? If an, yeah. If an Evid Kanani is freed, that actually means they're Jewish now. They're full-fledged Jews. A freed Evid Kanani is Jewish. So, if a mamzer would be with a non-Jewish maidservant, the children he has are slaves. If he frees those little slavelings, they're now like converts, and they're no longer mamzer. Now, this is a way that even today, 
you could do this, although the police might, might arrest you. Let's say a person is a mamzer. This may sound very, very funny. A person is a mamzer. He goes over to a non-Jewish woman and says to her, will you be my slave? Now, that doesn't sound, that doesn't sound as bad as you might think. She might naturally be offended. She might slap him in the face. But he says, no, 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 here's what I mean. You go to the mikvah. You take on the mitzvahs of a Jewish woman. And technically, you're my slave. But that's technical, and I don't have to mistreat you in any way, you know. It's just a name. It's a label. And we can have children. And our little children will be slaves, technically. But then I can free the children and they become full-fledged converted Jews and they no longer have the status of mamzer. Then the woman says, what about me? I remain a slave? She says, well, you have to remain a slave until you're in menopause and can't have any kids anymore. Because once I free you, you're like a regular Gioris. So any kids I have from you are going to be mamzers at that point, right? So she can't be free until menopause when she can't have kids anymore. But the kids can be freed as we go on. Again, again this is a real, real complicated uh, problem, but there is the theoretical possibility of a male mamzer marrying a non-Jewish slave woman, even today. Now, as I say, this doesn't mean, God forbid, a man treats her like a slave. I mean, he could treat her like his regular wife. He could treat her with all the respect in the world. But technically, she has the design designation of slave which will allow the children to be born as slaves. The kids are slaves too. A lot of kids say their parents are slave drivers, quite literally. Uh, they can say to their father, you're a slave driver. That would actually be, that would actually be true. Uh, and this is a very convoluted halakhic mechanism that could work for a mamzer. So again, to summarize, if a mamzer marries an already converted woman, the kids are mamzers. But that's permitted. If a mamzer marries a non-Jewish woman and has kids, the kids are goyim, who when they convert are not mamzer. And that would be great, but that is forbidden. The third option combines the two. A mamzer marries uh, a non-Jewish slave woman. The kids are slaves who when they are freed are Jewish and not mamzerim. That is both permissible and effective. But it's more complicated in terms of structuring that idea. Uh, but, and again, remember that a mamzer can only be generated from a halachic marriage. Non-halachic marriages cannot create mamzer. Okay? Uh, any, any question about that? Yeah. Um, so in that theoretical situation, um, would the children like say like later on down the road when it's time for like the children to have, like they are gonna have a little wedding and you're going through the paperwork, does it show up in the paperwork that their father's a monster and they, like all these details about like their, I guess like whole like status? So it depends what you mean show up in the paperwork, meaning to say um, there would normally have to be some rabbi or halakhic authority that would go through this process mm -hmm to be sure it's okay, yeah. but the rabbi would not necessarily have to make a, a written record of it or a public record of it. It could just be a, 
a private determination that once the rabbi determines there is no problem, mm -hmm. he may simply say, we don't have to talk about this anymore. Okay, and so it's something usually that would just stay like, kind of like once it's taken care of, kind of just like we don't talk about it anymore. We yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no reason to bring it up unnecessarily. There's no reason to even make a public uh, record or even a written record of it. But at some point, there would have to be some type of investigation regarding this status. In fact, there's an interesting story. I'll tell you a, a story about Rav Moshe Feinstein. I've mentioned him a number of times. I may, I may have said this before. I don't remember. But um, a, a boy was getting married, and he had lost his mother at a young age. And before his mother died of cancer or whatever, she had given him a locket. And she said he should wear this locket all the time and he should open it the day of his marriage. So he thought it would be like a message. His mother died, he was getting married, and under the chuppah, he's finally going to open up this locket from his dying mother. And uh, Ramosha Feinstein is the Masader Kedushin. He's marrying the couple. And the boy opens up the locket. So what does he think? He thinks it's like, I love you and I'm so proud of you. Some, some beautiful message from his mother or a lack of hair, or whatever it is. So instead, it says, uh, your father is not your father. I had an affair, and you're the, you're the son of uh, some other guy. <laughs> now, why she says open it up at the wedding, I, that makes no sense. The story doesn't make any sense. Well, I mean, why is she doing it badafka to... Uh... So the boy reads that he might be a mamzer, born from adultery. His mother you know, had a kosher wedding and everything else. So he turns white and he starts shaking uncontrollably. And Rabbi Feinstein looks at him and he says, what's the matter, what's going on? So the boy hands the message to Rabbi Feinstein to look at. Rabbi Feinstein looks at the message, he crumbles it up, puts it in his pocket and said, let's continue the ceremony. <laughs> in other words, Ramosha's point basically was, Halachically, a mother is not believed to say that her son is a mamzer. You see, halacha has a presumption that any kids a married woman has are from her husband. That's our assumption. You have to have witnesses that she got pregnant from. So even if mom herself says, even if the mother herself says, you are illegitimate, you are a mamzer, we don't believe him. We don't believe her. And if we don't believe her, the kid is allowed to marry anybody he wants. See? And Rav Moshe was so clear about the halacha that this didn't even, didn't even bother him. He didn't like say, let's take a five-minute break or something. He just crumpled the paper and says, let's go, let's go in. Right? So that's the, the engineer. Now, where you do get into a very fascinating shayla, again, I wasn't prepared to talk about this, is, well, so how does that, uh, how does that work with DNA testing? Meaning, okay... Rav Moshe did tell me that mom is not believed to say the kid is a mamzer. So even if mom says, I had you from another man, we don't believe her, and the child is presumed to be from the husband, and there's no mamzeris. That's an important bit of information to know. Uh, so what if we do a DNA test, and the DNA test establishes that this child is not from this husband? DNA, right? Pretty good stuff. So there, you actually get into a very, very big machlokas. There are some eminent rabbis 
who take the position that the halachic rule that we always assume a child is from the husband is so strong that that cannot even be contradicted by DNA evidence. And as a result, the DNA evidence is not considered as good as witnesses, eyewitnesses, and halakhically we can ignore DNA evidence. We can ignore it. Uh, we can use it to establish that the husband is the father, but we cannot use it to negate that the husband is the father. Others say a different reason, which actually makes a lot of sense. And actually, I have to give you a bit of missing information I didn't give you. Uh, you already know that in order to have a mamzer, there has to be a halachic marriage. But I want to add as well that the guy who commits the adultery has to be Jewish. That's another thing. So, consider this example. If a married Jewish woman commits adultery with a non-Jewish man, and the kid's Jewish, right? The kid that's born is Jewish. He's not a mamzer. The adultery that creates mamzer has to be from a Jewish man and not from a non-Jewish man. So as a result, even if DNA can establish that it's not from the husband, that's still not going to make the kid a mamzer because maybe the father is not. Is, now that you know it's not from the husband, but maybe the father is not Jewish. How do you know? You see? So there are two different reasons why we're Mako. Reason number one is, some posts can say the presumption that it's from the husband is so powerful that a DNA test cannot change that. Reason number two is, even if a DNA negates that the husband is the father, but maybe the adulterer father is a goy, and a goy does not produce mamzerim. This is an important halacha to know that sometimes rabbis forget. I'll give you a, a little story that, that, that I had, I was involved in myself. Uh, there was a very, very fine uh, student uh, in my yeshiva or Sameach. He's not there anymore. He's living in, in the United States. Uh, and he came to me with a story. He was very, very anxious. He said that um, his mother was married and uh, she had an affair with a man. And uh, she got pregnant from the man and uh, she told her son that he was born from that affair. So he was very concerned that he might be a mamzer. So one possibility was, well, the story I just told you, if he only knows it from what his mom said, his mom is not believed. That's one, one aspect. But putting that aside, uh, the first thing we wanted to look at was, well, maybe his mother's marriage was non-halachic because you didn't have kosher witnesses, Shomer Shabbos witnesses. And his mother had gotten married in like 1960 in a certain shul. It was very hard to find this out because the shul had been orthodox, then it turned into conservative, and she got married during the transition. So we couldn't figure out was the ceremony kosher or not? Now, you see why it's important? If it was kosher, he might be a mamzer. If it was not kosher, mom was never married, so he wouldn't be a mamzer. And you couldn't figure it out because it actually occurred during the transition. And uh, somebody even sent in a video 
uh, of weddings done, not that wedding, but weddings that were done in which they were halakhic weddings. So things looked really, really bad. So I told uh, the guy, you know, this is such a difficult question. I, I think we have to go to a higher up. We we're going to go to a higher rabbinical authority. So then he said, oh, it's just my, just my luck. Not only is my father a guy, but I'm, I might be a mamzer as well. I had forgotten to ask. I said, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, my mother was sleeping with a guy. Yeah. I said, wow, do you know that you're not a mamzer? <laughs> you see, the very thing that you thought was the real bad thing is the thing that saves you. So that taught me an important lesson. Be sure to ask that question. When people come to you and say, oh, I'm born from an affair, you know, am I a mamzer? Was the guy a goy or was the guy a Jew? <laughs> it's going to be critical. Because if the guy was a goy, there is no mamzer from a goy. Okay? So that's a really important thing to be aware of as well. Okay? Uh, so these are things to be aware of in terms of mamzer uh, generally. Okay. But now, going back to the... Uh, I don't know, we got onto this psuadaya, psuadaka, okay. Uh, mamzer, okay. Um, yeah. So now, uh, let's go back to the fertility technologies, which was our, our, our main topic. And uh, last week we discussed artificial insemination. So the next technological advancement in fertility technology was IVF, in vitro fertilization. Uh, in vitro just means in a dish, in a petri dish. And uh, this dates like uh, 1980 or so, I think, was in vitro fertilization. And the chiddish of in vitro fertilization is that instead of injecting sperm into the woman's body, we actually take eggs out of the woman through a surgical procedure of egg extraction, and we then mix the egg and the sperm in a petri dish, and uh, you can get a pregnancy in the petri dish, a conception, and then it is put back into the woman's womb, and she, holds, she carries the baby for nine months. IVF. And uh, IVF initially, uh, back in 1980, was an experimental procedure. Uh, but Baruch Hashem, now it is fairly standard, a very, very accepted uh, fertility uh, procedure. Uh, now, let's ask this question. If a couple has difficulty conceiving naturally, why would IVF make it better? Meaning, why does IVF work if regular relations don't work. So first of all, from the perspective of the man, IVF uh, is beneficial the same way artificial insemination is beneficial. If the man has a low sperm count, with IVF we can aggregate a lot of sperm to increase the volume of the sperm. If the man has a poor motility rate, meaning the sperm does not move quickly, with IVF you can put the egg and the sperm right next to each other so you don't need to travel, like sperm traveling, and you may, not, may die before it reaches the destination. So in terms of male fertility, the, the advantages of IVF are the same as artificial insemination. Uh, it, it, it addresses low sperm count and low motility. In terms of a female infertility, uh, IVF addresses the problem of blockages. There may be blockages in the fallopian tubes, there may be blockages that the egg does not descend properly. So in an IVF, you don't have any blockage problem. 
because the egg and the sperm are directly connected to each other. And in fact, there's even a procedure within IVF called ICSI, ICSI stands for some acronym, in which you actually can inject, and a doctor can inject the sperm into the egg directly. Because sometimes the sperm is not strong enough to penetrate the wall of the egg. Because there's a barrier. And you can actually inject it so it comes in, right? So IVF uh, can, work, can, can, can benefit, it can create, create benefits in a lot of uh, situations. Uh, so what are the halakhic problems with IVF? So there are two halakhic problems with IVF. One problem we've already talked about because it's the same as artificial insemination with husband sperm. That is the issue of masturbation because the sperm has to be produced. And there, without repeating what we talked about, we did discuss that since you're doing it for the purpose, not you, but since the man is doing it, for the purpose of having children, that is not called emission of sperm in vain. Right, so, that's, so in terms of the man, IVF is no different than artificial insemination generally. In terms of the woman, though, there is a particular issue, and that is the following. Uh, IVF is expensive, and IVF, although it's a pretty good procedure, is not fail-safe, and I believe, depending on the clinic, that the rates of success are typically under 50%. So I think uh, the rate of most fertility clinics to IVF is 35 to 60%, which means which means there's a fairly high failure rate, which means people who do IVF once often have to do it again. Now, there's an economic problem. In the United States, medical insurance typically pays, typically pays for a maximum of two IVF attempts. You get two IVF attempts, yeah. After that, uh, you gotta cover a lot of the cost, and an IVF could cost more than $10,000. In Israel, it's a much more child-friendly society, and I believe that the Kupat Cholim in Israel give you unlimited IVF attempts, which is a pretty good deal, actually. It's one of the pro-Aliyah arguments uh, that, that you, can, uh, you can make. I think the only rule in Israel is there's an age limit. They don't want women over 60 to do IVF or whatever, or over 50, uh, so then they go to Russia and do it. Russia, they'll take you at 70, and they'll try to do an IVF uh, there. That's why recently there was an Israeli woman that had a baby at 65 years old because she went to Russia, did an IVF, and went. Because remember, uh, you can carry, you know, if you have frozen eggs and the like, you can carry a baby even at 65 and, and, and the like. And Israel wouldn't have paid for it, and uh, she went there and, and, and got it done. Okay. Um, so here is what they do. So because IVF has a very high failure rate, although it's a good technology, doctors want to maximize the, uh, the success. So when they extract eggs from a woman, they extract many eggs. Now remember, in the normal course of ovulation, a woman releases only one egg per month, one egg per reproductive cycle. So if they were to simply extract a mature egg for IVF, they'd only have one egg to extract. And the chance of the sperm fertilizing one egg is very low. So they want to take a lot of eggs. They want to take 10, 20, 30, 40, a lot. But how do they get a lot? The ovaries only ripen one egg a month. So this is where 
un uh, unfortunately, and this is sometimes there are side effects, a woman is given special hormonal drugs that create what is called superovulation or hyperovulation, in which instead of one egg ripening and being released, uh, the woman takes uh, drugs that cause superovulation, in which many, many eggs are, are, are uh, matured. And then they take, they extract through surgery, and it is surgery, by the way, they, through a surgical procedure, they extract five, 10, or 20 eggs, put them in the Petri dish, expose them to the sperm. Now you understand, if the sperm is in contact with 20 eggs, that greatly maximizes the chance of success as compared to one egg. Okay, now, so putting us besides these side effects that a woman might suffer from these hormones, and they might be great, and that, that itself is a, an issue that a woman has to consider, let's look at the halachic problems. So now, in the Petri dish, we have 20 eggs. I'm making up a number, but we have, let's say 10. We have 10 eggs that are exposed to, to, exposed to sperm. Now, if of those 10 eggs, only one or two get fertilized, no particular problem. We will implant in the woman one or two, single or, 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 or twins, that's fine. But what if you have 10 eggs that are fertilized, octomon? whatever the term for 10, 10 is, tetromon. What are you supposed to do with fertilized eggs, which are embryos now, human embryos, which are in a much higher number that can, then can be safely transplanted? That is a serious, well, first of all, even outside of halacha, that is a serious question in IVF treatment, what do you do with a great number of embryos that cannot be safely implanted? And if you're a religious Jew, you have to analyze this from the perspective of halakha. What does halakha say about these extra embryos? So, let me first describe the secular context, and then we'll see what Jewish law would say. When a husband and wife go to a fertility clinic, whether it's in a hospital or a private clinic or whatever it is, and they want to do IVF, lawyers have prepared a very detailed contract for people to sign. You will be asked to sign a 20-page contract. And you're well advised to read it. And among the things that are in the contract is what will be done with fertilized embryos. So the clinic may say, we will implant up to, now the, the number could vary, two, one, two, three, four. Okay? I think four, I think, is usually kind of the limit, but it would depend. So then the question becomes, if there are more fertilized embryos than we have agreed to implant, the following choices are available, and then you have to check what choices you would go with. Choice number one, these are choices, then we'll talk about, and you check them. Freeze the embryos for later implantation 
in a reproductive cycle. Meaning, if there are 10 embryos, even if we're only going to implant four right now, but over time, you know, every year, whatever, you'll get another embryo or two embryos. Right? So that's option one. Because embryos can be frozen. It's not just sperm and eggs that can be frozen. The embryo itself can be frozen. It's a fertilized embryo can be frozen. So option one is freeze later embryos for implantation. Option two, donate embryos to infertile couples. Now you can donate your embryo now remember, embryo is not egg or sperm. Embryo is a human embryo. You can donate the, the human embryo for implantation to another infertile couple. Option three, spare, I hate the word spare, but that's what it's called. Spare embryos should be destroyed. Just destroy them, flush them down the toilet. Option four, Spare embryos can be used for medical research, such as the obtaining of stem cells. Remember, stem cells are those cells that can become all sorts of human tissues, and a common source of stem cells is an early embryo, which is not yet differentiated. See, once a cell becomes heart, liver, brain, you can't use it for other things. But for the first two weeks, it's an undifferentiated cell. And embryonic stem cells can be used in many, many therapies and the like. Okay? I'll, I'll get to it. It may, it may be, everything's not lucky, but I just want to, <laughs> so, so again, let's look at the choices. Freeze embryos for later use for the woman herself, the wife herself. Number two, donate embryos to infertile couples. Number three, destroy. Number four, which is also destroy, is utilize in medical research. Usually that's gonna be the retrieval of embryonic stem cells that will, will involve the destruction of the embryo in the course of retrieving the cells. Now, you and your husband, meaning you as, as a couple, will be asked to indicate your choices and even give a ranking. First choice, second choice, you know, third choice, etc. And legally, they will not enroll you in the IVF program until you indicate those choices. You can't just leave it blank unless they don't read the contract because they have to know because otherwise they may face what are they they're afraid of legal lawsuits they're afraid of liability unless they have your agreement for all of these things okay so this is whether you're jewish or not jewish this is going to be in the ivf contract so now the question we have to ask is okay right uh, i and my wife you and your husband are religious jews you want to follow halacha you want to do this IVF protocol because you're not able to have children on your own. So the question is, what types of choices are you allowed to make? Okay? So, the one thing that's very, very simple is the first choice is absolutely non-problematical. If you simply stipulate, I want these embryos to be implanted in me 
over a course of time, Baruch Hashem, there is absolutely no problem with that at all. Uh, let me point out, though, a little bit of an anomaly. It's an, it's an anomaly. It's not necessarily a serious question. That can actually mean that embryos that were fertilized at the same time may have considerably different ages, meaning to say if the IVF procedure fertilized multiple eggs and some of those eggs may not be implanted for five years, that means they're five years apart even though they were actually created the same time. Okay, I mean, that's, that is what it is, but that's not necessarily a particular halachic problem, but something to be aware of. Okay, now, option number two sounds like a very altruistic option because option number one sometimes doesn't work if you really have a large number of eggs. I mean, let's assume you have 20 eggs that were fertilized. Now, a person might say, well, I'm not ready to have 20 kids. I mean, if the only option I have is implantation in my body for later, that may not work if you have a very high number. So option two sounds like it's very generous and very altruistic. I will give my embryos to a couple that desires to have children, but unfortunately, for reasons that I, I'm not going to fully explain right now because it's, it requires something I didn't talk about yet. Uh, donation of embryos is very, very problematical because there will be serious halachic issues who are the parents. I mean, you understand it. If husband's sperm and wife's egg created an embryo and then that embryo is given to another couple and it is born from that other woman, who are the halachic parents of that child? Is, is it the egg and sperm donor? No, well, well, the one thing that's for sure is it's certainly not going to be the husband of the recipient. That's for sure. So we know who the father is. There's only one candidate for father. But there are multiple or two candidates for mother. And especially if one is Jewish and one is not Jewish, you're going to have a real problem. Is the child Jewish? So for reasons that I, I will elaborate on a little later on, Although donation sounds like the altruistic, generous way of doing it, uh, there are going to be immense halachic problems. Is the child Jewish or not Jewish? Uh, who is the mother? Etc. So that would normally not be advised. Does that fall under the same thing as like surrogacy? That's exactly right. Uh, it, it, it'll be exactly the problem of surrogacy. Although this is not surrogacy per se, this is just donation, but it will have the identical problem. Of surrogacy. That's why I'm going to talk about it more when we get to surrogacy. Sometimes I, yeah, I, I have to get ahead of myself because you'll, you'll understand this more when we get into surrogacy. Now, let's take option three and four together. Three says destroy it. Four also says destroy it, but use it for medical research, like stem cell research. So the problem with destruction of embryo is, of course, abortion. The Torah says once a sperm fertilizes an egg, it's considered to be a potential human life, and generally speaking, you're not allowed to terminate a potential human life. Uh, so the question would be, would embryo destruction, even for medical research, would that be a violation of the abortion laws? Now, let me remind you, the Catholic Church 
100% says it is. The Catholic Church takes the position that obtaining stem cells from embryos is an act of murder. It is an act of abortion. Now, you may recall, we talked about this briefly, that there are postkim, however, who say that the abortion laws do not kick in until an embryo is implanted in a womb. And the logic behind that is that the laws, the halachos against terminating a fetus or an embryo, only apply when the fetus or the embryo is in the environment where it could be brought to a birth. In other words, the womb. Outside of the womb, there is no particular prohibition. In fact, the term that's often used in medicine, at least, is an embryo outside of the womb is called a pre-embryo. Now, that's a, that is a made-up term, but that's a common term you'll see. So if you see the term pre-embryo, just be aware that that is the term for a human embryo that has not yet been implanted in a human womb. Uh, and according to some postgim, not all, there is no issue of abortion on pre-embryos because it's not yet in a womb. And uh, according to that, option three and four would be allowed because the retrieval of stem cells particularly medical research, uh, would be on a pre-embryo that has not been implanted in the womb. So as a result, I had mentioned four options. One is freezing for later use, 100% good. Option two, donation to an infertile couple, no, not proper. Option three, destruction, and option four, destruction for stem cell retrieval, both options would be permitted. And as between three and four, it seems four is much better because at least you're using it for a constructive, potentially life-saving benefit. Now it's true, you don't kill one person to save another person, but the laws of abortion say until implantation in the womb, it doesn't have the status of a person. And therefore, a retrieval of embryonic stem cells would not be, according to many opinions, not all opinions, would not be a violation of the abortion laws. Okay? Uh, now, if you took the stricter view, and if you took the opinion that as soon as there's fertilization, the abortion law kicks in, even if it's a pre-embryo, then you would not be allowed to retrieve stem cells from the embryo. So you'd have to basically say, uh, we either go with option one, or, or, or we can't do it, meaning, uh, if, I'm not, if a woman is not ready to have 10 children, then she has to say there have to be less than 10 eggs taken from my body. And that, of course, can sharply reduce the effectiveness. In other words, there would have to be in the, in the contract an agreement that no, embryo, no, no eggs will be removed beyond the number that I'm willing to have implanted either now or later. So if 10 is my maximum, even for the next rest of my life, then no more than 10 eggs can be taken, you see? And uh, that would be the cost of reducing the effectiveness of the procedure 
in order not to get involved in abortion problems. So what's interesting about this is it's a fascinating thing that IVF is a procedure designed to have children. But precisely in a fertility procedure, you have abortion issues. In other words, abortion comes up not only when you're trying to terminate a pregnancy. Abortion comes up when you're trying to have a pregnancy. It's interesting that in a fertility treatment, there are going to be serious abortion questions that may come up. Yeah? Let's say a couple has 10 free embryos and they want them saved for future use. What if in the future they don't want to? What if they change their mind? What if they change their mind, or what if they've shown the couple dies? Oh, well, yes, for sure. That, that's, that actually has already happened. Uh, there have been uh, places where pre-embryos were, were, were frozen. Uh, both people died in a plane crash. Uh, other times they got divorced, and mom wants the embryos implanted, and dad, who's no longer married, does not want his divorced wife to carry his uh, children. And you're correct, there could be a general change of mind. Now, in the secular world, I can tell you this, in the secular world, generally speaking, if a couple gets divorced and uh, one person does not want the embryos implanted, they will generally be destroyed unless there's mutual consent. If they both died, there was a case in California, it's interesting, um, uh, a couple, they were millionaires, they were quite wealthy. And uh, they died in a plane crash and they left 10 frozen embryos in a freezer. Technically, those frozen embryos inhabit, uh, would inherit a $10 million fortune. So there were a lot of very public-spirited women in California who came forward out of the kindness of their hearts, and they offered to carry these embryos, which of course would make them the guardians of $10 million, uh, but I think the court ruled that you destroy the embryos. Halakhically, it's much more of a problem uh, so again, it would seem to me that if you followed the permissive view that pre-embryos don't yet have a right to life, probably they would be destroyed. Uh, the real problem would be if you followed the stricter view that there is an abortion law, then somehow you'd have to find a home for them uh, and then, then you'd run, run a real, real problem. Uh, that's very true. It would be like any unwanted pregnancy in which the laws of abortion are still gonna, still gonna kick in. So these are very, very interesting interesting problems uh, that, that we have. By the way, just as a little aside, you know, uh, what about the, the laws of Shabbos? Uh, we know that uh, to sustain a pregnancy, uh, we, we, we violate Shabbos. It's, I mean, uh, if a woman goes into labor, uh, we violate Shabbos, or anything that would involve a danger to either her life or the life of the baby she's carrying, we violate, in fact, I, I, don't, I, I shouldn't even call it violating Shabbos because it's a mitzvah to try to save. So consider this question. This is really an unrelated to our subject, but it's connected to fertility technology. Let's imagine you have an IVF program and you have frozen eggs and frozen sperm and frozen embryos, right? Everything's in the freezer. And there's a big power outage on Shabbos. <laughs> the freezer stops working. And if the freezer stops working, that means the embryos are going to die very quickly. They have to be frozen. They have to be cold. So, uh, if you're a religious Jew, are you allowed to kind of fix the refrigerator on Shabbos? Is that called pikuach nefesh? Now, saving a life, for sure. 
you violate Shabbos to save a life. But do I treat the pre-embryos as life for which I desecrate the Shabbos in order to preserve? So many opinions actually say yes. They say, well, listen, these are embryos that could eventually be brought to term. So Pikuach Nefesh says we violate Shabbos to save them. So if that means repairing the refrigeration system, if that means driving my truck to the hospital, I'm allowed to do it. But I hope you can see that that creates an inconsistency in halachic rules. Because I just told you that many opinions say there is no prohibition on destroying pre-embryos because they're not implanted. So wait a second here. So you're telling me I'm allowed to destroy them and I'm allowed to desecrate Shabbos to keep them alive? That sounds like a contradiction. If it's, not a, if it's a life I'm even allowed to destroy, then how can it be a life that allows me to violate Shabbos in order to preserve? So this is a very, very interesting halachic contradiction that you can violate Shabbos to save the pre-embryos, but halachically you could have decided to destroy the pre-embryos for stem cell retrieval or whatever it is. So I don't have an answer to that, just pointing out that interesting inconsistency in the halachic, in the halachic rules. Okay? So again, as I say, overall this is a very, very interesting problem uh, because it reminds you how halachos are so interrelated that in the middle of a fertility technology you've got an abortion problem that you have to deal with. Okay, so that's the IVF. Now, uh, I also mentioned that uh, the shitos that allow abortion, so to speak, of pre-embryos uh, also enable the procedure that's called pre-implantation genetic screening. Uh, there are certain genetic conditions uh, like uh, Tay-Sachs and the like that you can actually analyze once you have an embryo. And although uh, most opinions say abortion is not allowed of a Tay-Sachs baby, but if it's an in vitro pre-implantation genetic screening, that might allow a selective abortion under those circumstances. So IVF can also allow for pre-implantation genetic screening, which would not be possible in a regular Pregnancy. Okay. So now, uh, so, so we talked about artificial insemination uh, last week. We talked about regular IVF. Now let's talk about donation. Because it is possible to involve third parties uh, in the reproductive process. Uh, and you can have sperm donors. You can have egg donors. And you can have womb donors. Now, sperm donors, we did talk about last week. That is simply donor sperm. And you'll recall we mentioned the big, big machlokas, the Satna Rebbe and Rabosha Feinstein. If a Jewish woman is impregnated, a married Jewish woman, is impregnated with donor sperm, is she guilty of adultery? And is the child a momser? Right, we discussed that argument. Uh, if anyone has a question, I'll, I'll take a question, but I don't, uh, otherwise don't need to repeat that machlokas. But now, let's talk about another type of donation, which is much more recent, although it's been around for 50 years already now, and that is egg donation. 
Now, egg donation would work in the following circumstance. Let's say you have a wife, a woman, whose womb is fine. She can carry a baby. She has not had a hysterectomy. But either she's past menopause, although that's fairly rare for egg donors, but let's say she's past menopause, so there's no ovulation, or the quality of her eggs are not maturing, her ovaries are not well. In fact, it may even be she doesn't have ovaries. It may have been that because of cancer, they removed the ovaries, but they left the uterus. That is possible. So essentially, she has a uterus, she doesn't have good eggs. No ovaries, postmenopause, or the eggs are not maturing in the follicles correctly. So, as a result, a pregnancy will not happen because the sperm does not have an egg to which it unites, and even in vitro they can't ripen the eggs, or maybe she doesn't have a tolerance for the hormonal drugs to stimulate ovulation. Can a uterus sustain a pregnancy Well, yes, because the ovaries produce the egg. But if there's an egg donor, if there's an egg donor, then it would be possible to implant the fertilized egg into the uterus. See, you don't need the ovaries for the pregnancy, you need the ovaries for the ovulation. So we have this industry that's called egg donation. So women have come forward and they've donated the egg. Now, that actually means they have to go through the same medical procedures as the wife would have to do in an in vitro. They have to take drugs, hormones, superovulation, and they go through a surgical procedure to extract those eggs. Being an egg donor is a lot rougher than being a sperm donor. The sperm donor is very simple. There is no medical procedure that is needed for sperm donation. Egg donation is a surgical procedure. Uh, They can do it uh, laparoscopically, etc. There are ways they can make it easier, etc. But it is a procedure that involves a recovery and can have side effects and the like. And that's in addition to the hormonal drugs that can be very, very rough. So what then happens is the egg is extracted from the woman. It is fertilized with the husband's, usually the donor is anonymous, an anonymous egg donor. Uh, It is then exposed to the husband's sperm in vitro. So every egg donation is an IVF as well. And then, assuming it's fertilized, it'll be transplanted to the wife's body, uterus, and she will carry the baby for nine months. Okay, that's egg donation. So egg donation is always in conjunction with IVF. IVF through egg donation. Okay, so what is the problem? What is the halachic problem with egg donation? IVF is okay, so why would egg donation gum up the works a little bit. So here, the major problem is, who is the mother? Motherhood is a very important point here. And the reason why it's important is because Judaism is defined by the mother. If the mother is Jewish, the kid is Jewish. If the mother is not Jewish, the kid is not Jewish. The father's status makes no difference. It's fundamental to Jewish identity that there is no halachic category called half-Jew. People might say, oh, if my father is Jewish and my mother is not, I'm half-Jewish. No, not true. You're not Jewish at all. 
And people might say, if my mother's Jewish and my father's not Jewish, I'm half Jewish. No, not true. You're all Jewish. Meaning, you're either all or nothing. There is no, at least halakha, I'm not, I'm not talking about sociologically. Sociologically, a person might say, oh, I was raised both ways, so, you know, I'm a mixture. Okay, that's fine. That's just your sociological identity. But in your halakhic identity, it's all yes or all no. There is no such thing as a half-Jew. Okay, you know that. That's, that's very, very fundamental. So consequently, if somebody's mother is not Jewish, they're not Jewish. Now, here's the thing. In the United States, it's very likely that the egg donor is likely to be a non-Jewish woman because most women in the United States are non-Jews. So the problem is, if a non-Jewish egg is fertilized by Jewish sperm, but is then carried for nine months by a Jewish woman, is the child, the wife, the wife is a Jewish woman, that's an assumption, right? This is, egg do- this is not surrogacy, this is egg donation. Do I say the child is a goy because genetically the DNA that it got from the maternal side is the non-Jewish DNA? Or do I say since the baby was in a womb of a Jewish woman for nine months, the baby is a Jew. Now this is a major question. If the baby is a goy, the baby would have to be converted. And we'll discuss how you convert babies. If the baby is a Jew, the baby would not have to be converted. So yes, you're Jewish based on your mother, but what is the halachic definition of mother? Is mother the gestational person? Gestation meaning the one that carried the baby for nine months? Or is mother the genetic contributor whose DNA combined with the paternal DNA to produce, in vitro, to produce this particular mixture? Now, if we were simply using our common sense, common sense might say that the genetic contribution is more significant than the gestational contribution because the genetic contribution is what gives rise to the uniqueness of your physical and emotional state. Gestation is just an incubator. Theoretically, we're not there yet, there could be an artificial womb that gestates for nine months. So one might have thought we ought to give priority to the egg donor rather than the Jewish woman that carried the baby. And yet, spiritually, there may be proofs to go the other way. Those of you that learn Tanya are familiar. Uh, well, actually, the, the, the Rebbe does not quote this part of it, but probably when they taught you Tanya, they added it. Right? The Tanya begins with the idea that before you're born, you take a shavua, you take an oath to God to be a tzaddik and not to be a rasha, etc. Right? That's uh, Tanya. That's a, but 
That is actually a quote from a longer brisa, and the longer brisa is actually discussing before a baby is born, there is an angel that is learning the Torah with the baby. Right? We're taught by a malach all of the Torah, and then before we're born, and then that, and that's when the malach makes us swear to God that we will be righteous, and then we get hit on the lip, that's the indentation of the lip. So we forget everything. So we're born into the world forgetting the Torah. And by the way, so the, the, the interesting question is, if you're born in the world forgetting everything, you don't know anything, obviously, you're a baby. So why, why uh, did the angel bother to teach you everything that's then gonna be taken away from you? And, and the answer is actually very simple. You forget the conscious information, but it's imprinted on your soul, on your godly soul. The Torah of Hashem is part of you. So yeah, you forgot it. You don't remember it. But when you encounter it, it's going to be familiar to you because it's already in you. Now, that text suggests that there's something a lot more that's happening in a womb than just warehousing the kid for nine months. There's a spiritual development of the essence of a godly soul. And if it's in the body of a non-Jew, there'll be a certain development that goes on. And if it's in the body of a Jew, there's a different development that's going on. And that would favor the idea that the definition of a mother should be the gestational mother that carried the baby for nine months because that was the stage in which the baby's spiritual personality was formed through the Torah that it learned via the angel. Can you repeat that? From where? I was saying that you see from this Gemara that the function of the nine months of pregnancy is not just a warehouse but there are things going on that determine the very essence of the spiritual nature of this child. In the body of a non-Jew there's one type of process that that he undergoes. In the body of a Jew there's another type of process that is undergoing. And this would suggest, therefore, that perhaps the child's mother should be defined as the one that carried the baby for nine months, as opposed to the genetic contribution. In other words, the point I'm making is, there are two types of arguments you can make. Scientifically, you could argue, that the egg donor should be the mother because it is her genetic contribution that is the DNA of the child, together with the father's. But spiritually, one could say that the neshama was formed in those nine months. So, this is a big problem. Egg donors. Assuming the egg donor is non-Jewish, 
do you need conversion or don't you need conversion? So let me just give you the bottom line, and, and this I, I think is widely not followed. Most opinions do say we look at the birth mother. So if the birth mother is Jewish, the kid's Jewish. And that would be simple. That, that actually makes things very simple. However, there is a minority view that says the genetic contributor has a role and therefore it is proper for the child to have a conversion. Now I will tell you practically that there are many, many, well, maybe not many, many, but many, many Orthodox couples have used egg donors and usually they don't even tell their child that it was from an egg donor and they certainly do not do any conversion because if you think about it I mean egg donor I mean the one a Jewish woman is carrying the baby for nine months and has a kid uh, people don't think of this as oh maybe the child is not Jewish so practically I would say people who use egg donation number one don't tell the kid and number two do not do a conversion but halachically, this may not be the best thing. Halachically, if you want to be sure that your child is 100% Jewish, there ought to be a conversion. If the, if, the, if the egg donor is not, if the egg donor is Jewish, you don't have a problem. Okay? So that's kind of the issue with egg donation. Now again, as I say, uh, in Israel, you would assume the egg donor is Jewish. But in the United States, other countries, any country other than Israel, you always assume unknown source comes from the majority component. And if the majority component of the population are not Jewish, you would assume the egg donor is not Jewish. So that's one issue with egg donor, Jewish, non-Jewish, and what's the status of the child. There is another issue of egg donor. By the way, these issues will repeat by surrogacy, but just, it's just a reversal. I'll, I'll go over that next week to be clear. And that is potential incest. Let me give you this example. Sometimes a sister, instead of an anonymous egg donor, you may have a sister may donate an egg to her sister. So sister's egg gets fertilized with husband's sperm and the embryo is then implanted in his wife's womb. In fact, there are bizarre situations where a mother has given her egg to her daughter. That's actually fascinating. Is the mother's relationship grandmother? What's the mother's relationship to the kid? Grandmother or mother? <laughs> it's her egg. The kid was born from her egg but she's the mother of his mother. Right? Crazy relationships. But halakhically, the problem is, once again, it's similar to the Satmar Rebbe's problem with sperm. Is that incest? Meaning, if husband's sperm 
fertilizes his mother-in-law's egg. <laughs> being with a mother-in-law is incestuous in halacha. And being with your wife's sister is incestuous. That that's, it happens to be an erva. So the problem with some egg donors is not Jewish versus non-Jewish, even if we know for sure the donor is Jewish. But if it's a close relative, you have a problem of incest. And the problem of incest is that produces mamzer. Mamzer is not only from adultery. Mamzer also happens when there's an incestuous relationship. So, if man's sperm fertilizes his wife's sister, say, or if the man's sperm fertilizes his mother-in-law's egg, is that an incestuous relationship? Which would mean the child that's born from that relationship, relationship, not much of a relationship, but that fertilization would be a match. And, in fact, I'll add another simple dimension. What if the egg donor is married? Same thing. If the egg donor is married, what if husband sperm fertilizes the egg of a married woman? Is that adultery produced monster? So, a bikitsor, just to uh, again um, summarize this, there are three halachic issues with egg donation. Halachic issue number one is if the egg donor is not Jewish, does the child need conversion? Or do I look at the birth mother as Jewish and the child does not need conversion? Issue number two, if the egg donor is related in a way that it's incestuous, according to halacha, and the examples I gave you uh, were that it's either the wife's sister or the husband's sister, either one. A sister of either husband or wife donated an egg that the husband's sperm fertilized, or the husband's mother-in-law, or mother for that matter, donated an egg. Would that be incestuous? That could produce mamzer. And number three, if the egg donor is a Jewish woman who's halachically married, would the fertilization of her egg be an adultery that could produce mamzer. And so issue two and three are both connected to mamzer. Issue one is connected to Jew versus non-Jew. And so those are some of the halachos, or the complexities, connected with egg donation. Next week I'll, I'll finish this up, Emir Hashem, and then we'll move to surrogacy. But, but the truth of the matter is you will see that surrogacy is quite literally, it's just a flip of the same questions because you've split the egg Whenever you split the egg from the birth, you're going to have these problems of who's the mother. In the case of surrogacy, the wife carried the baby. In the case of, I'm sorry, in the case of egg donation, the wife carried the baby. In the case of surrogacy, it's the wife's egg and the surrogate carries the baby. It's much the same problem. Okay, see you next week.